is. When we focus on the Lord, it brings the presence of God. And that's so important uh, in our meetings. Over the years, I've had the privilege of meeting with a wide variety of church expressions, from open brethren through to Anglican, uh, from Baptist to Pentecostal, charismatic to Presbyterian. So I've covered the whole gambit. And one thing I've noticed is that each of these groups have what we call their own liturgy. That is the way that they do church. And that's fine as long as liturgies don't hinder the working of the Holy Spirit and don't hinder the functioning of the saints of God. As long as Jesus is central, as long as they allow the word of God to be preached as it's written, as long as we keep the gospel absolutely central to our message, and as long as Jesus high is lifted high, then our liturgies can be okay. The danger of liturgy is that it can become a straitjacket that stifles the free flow of the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to slightly change the way we do things. Uh, Partway through my sharing with you, we're going to pray as a congregation for a need that we have. So we're just going to break our liturgy a little bit. And as a congregation, you're very blessed to have elders like Tim and Paul and the others uh, who are prepared to break the liturgy of the church for the time that we're in. It's very interesting to me that the New Testament doesn't take us inside a New Testament church meeting. Have you ever thought about that? And I think there's a very good reason for this. Because we human beings very quickly become legalistic. And legalism quenches the moving of the Holy Spirit. And we would quickly resort to copying that service. And so we would lose the whole business of the leading of the Holy Spirit in our meetings. What should mark our gatherings together is the fluidity of being led by the Holy Spirit. This is where our life comes from, from being filled and led by the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jesus was talking about those who had been born from above? And he said, those who are born from above are born of the Spirit, and it is the Spirit that gives life. Now, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Paul's writing to the Corinthian church here and he says, we're not going to rely on our own natural resources when we move in the spiritual realm. What is going to happen is that God the Holy Spirit is going to assist us. He is going to be our adequacy. Verse 6, 
who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. We could say legalism kills. And then Paul agrees with the Lord Jesus and he said, but the Spirit gives life. So when you and I read through the New Testament, we get little keyhole glimpses only of how the New Testament church operated. And I'm just going to share some of those keyhole glimpses with you this morning. So let's go to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to pick up from verse 41. To bring it into context, this is at the very end of Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost. And Peter had experienced the greatest response than any evangelist or someone who's sharing the gospel can expect or or experience. That is, after sharing the gospel, the crowd said to him, men and brethren, what shall we do? If you've ever witnessed and suddenly someone's opened up to you and said, how do I receive this? That's the greatest response you can get. And Peter tells them what they have to do. They have to repent and be baptised and then be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we pick up the story from verse 41. So then those who had received his word were baptised. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We have an amazing glimpse of the early church. This is the church that Jesus founded. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is the church that he had wanted to continue for the last 2,000 years. Let's have a look at the 10 continuing features of this early church gathering. Number one, they sat continually under good, sound, biblical teaching. If you want to grow a church, you preach the word of God. You don't play games outside of that. Next, they fellowshiped together. Then we read they ate their meals together. They prayed together. And the endorsement of God was that they had continually experienced the awesome presence of God. They cared for one another. They praised and they worshipped together. And this is so important, the next one. They met as one unified church in the city. 
I remember doing a study in Wellington with a church down there, and within the first few years, the church's numbers in Jerusalem was over 50,000, and it was one church in the city. I used to travel overseas quite a bit, and I remember going to Seoul, Korea. And in Seoul, Korea, there are two churches when I was going there of one million people each. And Seoul, when I was visiting there, used to have 10 million people. And so the amazing thing was the church didn't have to be political. It just had to be. Because when the politicians were making any kind of law or legislation, they would go to Yongi Cho or they would go to the First Presbyterian Church of Seoul and say, is this legislation suitable to your congregation? All the church had to do was keep on witnessing. If the church was unified, we would have impact. And if you look through the New Testament, you'll see there was always only one church in a city named by the location of that city. What a change it would be if all the believers in Taupo were part of one church. We are, but we are divided and we don't have the impact we could have. Imagine, I don't know how many believers in Taupo, but say there's a thousand, I don't know. Maybe there's more. And if the legislators saw that there were 2,000 people, they might think twice about some of the legislation they were bringing in. So they were one city, uh, one church in the city. The next thing, they found favour out there in the marketplace. And lastly, they experienced daily salvation growth. 3,000 souls were saved in the Pentecost meeting. It would only take eight days for the whole of Taupo to be saved. Something to think about, isn't it? Are we doing church right? Let's go to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4... Peter and John had been going up to the temple and there was a man there that was lame. Do you remember? And he was gloriously healed. And the result was that the religious leaders brought them on to trial. And Peter and John did a night in the clink and then they were brought before the religious council and they were told not to preach in the name of Jesus. And we take up the story in verse 23 of Acts 4. When they had been released, they went to their own companions. In other words, they went back to their church group. And they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. And I just want to emphasise that because later in our service we're going to do this. Here was a church that all prayed the same prayer together at once. It's rather interesting. They lifted their voice to God with one accord. Then they pray the truths of God's word. 
O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. For believers, that's non-negotiable truth. Our God is the God who made heaven and earth and everything that is in it. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. I just want to note something here. The church has not had a good testimony with regard to Israel. And it's rather interesting to me here that we've often blamed them for crucifying our Saviour. But here the scripture says we were included. It was the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Your sin and my sin put our Saviour on the cross. So we don't blame Israel or anybody else. It was part of God's eternal plan. Because look at verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God had planned Calvary way back before time. And now, verse 29, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. While you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I want you to note, beloved, the response of the church to their current situation. They lifted their voices to God in corporate prayer. In other words, they operated at the need of the moment. And then they experienced the invigorating, empowering life of the Spirit. That would be some prayer meeting to be in, wouldn't it? I've been in meetings like that. It still happens today. Acts chapter 12 and verse 11. Herod had had James killed. And he saw that this pleased the Jewish hierarchy. So he thought, I'll proceed to go down through the apostles and I'll take their heads off one at a time. So he gets Peter and puts him in prison, intending to bring him out and kill him. I don't understand the ways of God. Here, James was allowed to die as a martyr. And yet God chose to deliver Peter. This is where we have to bow to the sovereignty of our God. And we're picking up at verse 11. When Peter came to himself, uh, that is that he'd had a miraculous deliverance from prison, 
He said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish and all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. And here it is. And many were gathered together praying. Here's the response of the church to the current issue at hand. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognised Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. I love this. Verse 15, And they said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting it was so. So Peter's standing at the gate, and the church is having an argument whether he is there or not, although he's knocking. Rather interesting. Do you think God's got a sense of humour at times? I think he does. And they kept saying, it is his angel. They obviously had a kind of a theology on angels that I haven't heard preached in my day in any case. Verse 16. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. Again, the response of the church was to its current need and situation. And what I like about this is it doesn't seem as, the church, as though the current church that we're just talking about there had a lot of faith or expectations that their prayers were going to be answered. Did you notice that? They're arguing over it. But beloved, you and I worship a most loving, gracious, precious, faithful God who will do what he does regardless of us. Isn't that amazing? So there wasn't a lot of faith in that prayer meeting, and yet God had done something fantastic. One final passage, James chapter 5 and verse 13. And James is again giving us a little look into a church. And he covers a whole spectrum of needs. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Unfortunately, in this world, all of us suffer. Is there anyone in here who has not suffered? Mm -mm. We've all suffered. The answer to suffering, for some reason, is prayer. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. My point with all these passages is this. The early church was very fluid. It operated according to the need of the moment. And beloved, we as a church have a current need. And our current need 
is that we have our precious Martin and his wife needing recovery. That's our need. And God's saying, church, rise to the current need that you have. I believe that this man, Martin, is God's man for this season of this church's history. And so we need to pray for him. And it's a scientific fact that those who have believers praying for them recover much quicker and better than those who don't. One of the compound names of our God is Jehovah Rapha, I the Lord am your healer. That is who he is. It's a description not just of a name, but of who he is, one of his characteristics, his attributes. I, the Lord, am your healer. And beloved, our God doesn't change. He is the ever-existent, ever-present healing God. The writer to the Hebrews said this, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you, dear brother. Now, what we're going to do is something now. The scripture says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Now, those that have been given verses to distribute, would you just stand up and find your aisle and I'll, you, you just let me guide you now, church. And what we're going to do, we've only got a brief slot of time. I want you to stand as a church now and the front row will turn and face the row behind you. And we're going to divide this, this into two groups down here. You just have to sort yourselves out. And the people you're facing is your little prayer group. And you can start to distribute those verses and you'll be given one verse and I'd like someone in each group to read out loud the verse that you're given. Start to distribute the verses there, Brent. Yeah. Okay, church. Okay, church. Church, church. Just listen quickly. Would someone in your group be prepared to just read that scripture out to your group? Then we're going to want you to pray as a little group. Just two comments. If you're a visitor here, please bear with us and understand. And maybe you've never, ever prayed publicly before. You don't have to pray, but what a wonderful opportunity to pray and we're only going to pray for one thing. We're not praying for Mrs. O'Malley's warts. We are only going to pray that Martin will receive an absolute, complete, 100% healing. And that Helen also will experience a healing and a grace to be able to get through this time. That's your prayer. And we've only got a few minutes, so brief 
arrow-shot prayers at the target. Let's go right now. You may take your seats again. Have any of you sat by a bubbling brook and just listened to the sound of water? That's what you sounded like. It was beautiful. Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And that's what happened just then. Rivers of living water were flowing. James says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And our God has stooped down this morning and he's heard every prayer uttered, whether it was in your heart or out of your mouth. And he says, I approve. I approve and I will do it. I want to just give very, very brief thoughts on some of the scriptures that were handed out to build your faith. You only got one verse, but there were actually ten different scriptures given out this morning. And the first is this, our God is a healing God. He is Jehovah Rapha. And therefore, it's part of his nature to heal. No sickness or disease is outside of his power to heal even to the point of death. He is willing to heal. Jesus saw healing as doing good. He never turned a sick person away. And he healed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that indwells every believer in this room. On the cross, Jesus not only paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin, but the scripture tells us that he took our infirmities and he bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains and he defeated Satan on the cross of Calvary. I'm just going to close now with a personal testimony. And this is just a little keyhole slot into part of my personal walk with the Lord. In 1950, my father had a sovereign encounter with the Holy Spirit in our home in 109 Grafton Road, Roseneath, Wellington. And he experienced what we now know as the mighty baptism in the Holy Spirit. And after my father's experience, my mother, who was not a well woman when I was a young boy, started a fast to seek God. And she was sitting in her bed one morning when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon her. But she didn't understand what was happening to her. She thought she was going to die. You see, we were open brethren at the time, so we had no concept of Holy Spirit experiences. So because she was sick, she assumed this was her end. I was aged 11 and I was about to go to school and I had suffered from debilitating migraine headaches 
all my life, the first 11 years of my life. They were so bad that I would often have to be carried home by friends from my school. In any case, this morning, my mother called me into her bedroom and she said, I think I might be dying because she could feel this power running through her body. And so she said, I want to bless you before you go to school. And we knew nothing of the laying on of hands, but instinctively, as a mother would to her young son, she put her hand on my head and she began to bless me in the name of the Lord. And I went off to school somewhat confused, as you can imagine. What's going on here? When I returned home from school that day, my mother was up in the kitchen preparing our family evening meal. And in our family, that was rare during, due to her not being at all well. But she was up, and she was very, very bright. And she said, Ian, this morning, God has touched and healed me. How have you been today? And beloved, I remember this day as clear now as it happened 65 years ago. I said to my mother, where you put your hand on my head this morning has been burning hot all day and the rest of me has been cold. That was 65 years ago. From that day till this, 2017, I have never, ever again had a migraine headache. I was healed and delivered from them on that day, which I wrote in my Bible as a young boy, the 10th of October, at least the, the, the 10th of September, 1952. God heals today. My precious mother also experienced not only a baptism in the Holy Spirit, but she experienced a mighty healing the blessing of which she lived in for the next 52 years of her life, and she died at age 92 in 2005. So I know God heals today because I've experienced it. And our God never changes. Hallelujah. Amen. 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 Amen.